Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 19, recorded on April 18th, announcing the new Cloud Pod premium tier. Well, good evening, guys. It's been a crazy week. Uh, last week, we, of course, talked about all everything Google Next, which means that we have a ton of news from both Azure, Amazon Web Services, and, of course, Google uh, from last week and this week to cover. So we're going to jump, jump right into this week's topics. Uh, so first of all, uh, Azure has released uh, alerts in a more consistent format. So this is a new uh, service for Azure Monitor that now provides you a new common alert schema. All payloads generated by Azure Monitor will now have a consistent structure. There's uh, two portions of this. The essential section, which is a standardized field, which is a common across all alert types. And then there's an alert context set of fields that is for specifically tied to the alert. So I would say disk space alert or an application alert, um, specific monitoring alert type metadata components that are in that particular uh, metric type. So pretty nice, uh, good way to start standardizing your alerting and logging frameworks and something you should be looking at if you're doing anything with alerting and monitoring at scale. Yeah, definitely, and also um, any any use of big data or machine learning is going to re- rely on a fixed scheme like this, so it's cool. Yeah, also much easier to automate responses when we're automating ops. Yeah. yeah, that's one of the benefits they highlighted was that, you know, with standardizing the metadata, you can create routing and alerting rules uh, that are standardized for your on-call engineers or for your alerting systems or automation systems. Um, so overall, I, I like this idea of uh, standardized alerting for both logging and metrics. It's kind of taking the industry by storm. I would hope for maybe eventually a whole industry-wide standard for it um, that everyone can adopt versus a cloud-specific solution or a, a solution-specific, like Elastic's common long format. Uh, but you know, definitely in the right direction. Log SQL. We'll start our own log SQL. <laughs> I kind of sure. wonder if any of these changes will actually break any existing users. So it does say in the announcement on this one that uh, by default it is turned off, and so um, if you already are using uh, Azure Monitor, you will not have this turned on unless you go in and actually go physically turn it on. Um, and so once you toggle TS, it'll start using that common schema. So it won't break your existing alerts, but. Uh, if you want to get advantage of this, you do need to go take some actions. Yeah, cool. Uh, if you're buying a lot of uh, Azure reservations, uh, the new self-service exchange and refund system has gone live. Uh, this allows you to exchange or refund an Azure reservation without the need for a support ticket. Uh, and so basically, if you're getting a refund, it's prorated at the amount uh, used of your reservation versus what's remaining. And if you are selling it off, you sell off the remaining portion you have not used uh, to anyone else who's interested in buying your particular reservation. Doesn't this kind of defeat the object of a reservation, though? If you can choose to end it and get your money back at any time of the uh, of the contract. One of the limitations, particularly of this, is that if you bought the wrong instance type, or let's say you started with large instances and then your load increased, and you realize it would make sense to do some more um, vertical scaling versus horizontal, you know that would end up resulting in you having a reservation that's not being used when you switch to the new instance type. So now you can refund your large, buy the extra large. Um, on a new reservation and then still not lose money in the process. No, I guess it makes sense on the on the hypervisor end of that. If if you just if you're switching instance sizes up, then you're still you're still making use of those cores that were provisioned, and now you're making use of some extra ones. So I I guess it kind of makes sense. I mean, uh, getting a refund, I guess, is still a different case. But I've also had engineers not realizing what they were doing, going by uh, reservations without asking or knowing what they're doing. And so you know, having the ability to refund them is sort of nice for those mistakes as well. Um, and you can do it yourself without having to open a support ticket. So yeah, not too bad. 
you know, all these guys are sort of going to uh, this model of we just want a uh, some threshold spend on your account to give you specific discounts instead of on a server basis or a server type basis, which is great. Staying with uh, Azure here, they have now unlocked dedicated resources and enterprise features for their new Service Bus Premium tier. Uh, this allows you to migrate <laughs> existing service buses that you've deployed to the new Service Bus Premium tier. Service Bus Premium provides several features, including dedicated resources for your namespaces. Uh, and this results in a more reliable throughput and predictable latency at a fixed price per messaging unit. Um, and this is better than standard, as standard is a multi-tenant system where this is now dedicated to you. I find unlock to be a weird word to use to describe something like this. It's almost like, you know, we're walking around the office collecting pain and finally we've collected enough pain and now we've unlocked these other features for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, overall, I'm sort of not impressed with this move that Microsoft's doing with premium versions of their services. Like, which you, you know, the, the basic tier is not good enough for you. You now need the premium tier to get the services you really should have that should come from just things like volume or from, you know, I cross a certain volume threshold. I should now have a dedicated service bus. You know, it should just happen automatically for me. I shouldn't have to think about it. Now you're making me make choices based on my budget um, and not what's necessarily best for my business. And that's not always a good trade-off. Yeah, it's like first-class train tickets or plane tickets. Yeah. Like you're still moving people around. They're just paying more for more comfy seats. Exactly. Yeah, I don't think I like the term premium either, but I see reasons for alternate pricing based on different feature sets. Yeah, potentially. But some of the, the alternative premium, they've branded as a consumer class. You're just a consumer until you pay them enough money and then you become premium. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the way Microsoft's always worked. You know, you're just a Windows user until you become an enterprise Windows user. <laughs> All right. Azure has now extended their security capabilities with several new capabilities being added to Azure Security Center. Those include the Advanced Threat Protection Module for Azure Storage. Uh, this detects anonymous access and data exfilact activities and patterns, uh, provides emailable alerts to your SOC teams, a centralized view of all these alerts per tenant, and then easy enablement for many storage accounts across the Azure portal policies and APIs to standardize all of that compliance. Uh, they also have now made the regulatory compliance dashboard generally available. And the security center now supports virtual machine scale set. So you can monitor the security posture of your VM scale set, which is basically an auto-scaling group, uh, versus getting a bunch of security vulnerabilities to a VM instance that's about to get you know, descaled <laughs> and then goes away, uh, which is a big problem if you're using some legacy uh, qualless type tools in your environment. It's often said that war drives um, innovation. And although we're not in a war right now, the Jedi contracts and, the, and the, the work that all the providers are putting in to enhance their features and enhance their security postures, it's definitely filtering back down to, the, to us uh, as consumers. The one that caught my eye here is just that everything we can do um, at the service level to help with data exfiltration concerns is just huge because that's, that's the one big glaring concern and worry is, do we do something wrong? Is Are things flowing out the front door and we don't know it? Yeah, I guess if we can use a service, a data storage service, you have no way of getting in between that and your consumers. Yeah. And so they, they have to provide this. All right, moving on from Azure here. Amazon has announced they're going to boost their presence in Asia with the new Indonesian cloud region. This new region based out of Jakarta will open in 2022 and include three availability zones, and this will be the ninth region in Asia-Pac. Uh, 
Peter DeSantis, Vice President of Global Infrastructure and Customer Support, said, Opening an AWS region in Indonesia will support the country's fast-growing startup ecosystem, large Indonesian enterprises, and government agencies by helping drive more technology jobs and businesses, boosting the local economy, and enabling organizations across all verticals to lower costs, increase agility, and improve flexibility. I will take a note personally to make sure we add this to the agenda of our one of our December 2021 shows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a little bit far in advance on these announcements for regions, but you know, it, it seems to be this is what all the vendors are doing. You know, Seoul and uh, Utah were announced at Google Cloud. Azure has announced many regions that aren't available yet, but that are coming soon. It seems to be you know a way to get market share by announcing these regions, even though they're not going to be available for several years. Well, I think also it's because you know when cust- when uh, companies know they need a presence in a country and they're deciding, do I start building a data center today or do I wait for the cloud data center to be available? They've got to know they've got to let you know ahead of time. Otherwise, by the time you build it, they've already built their data centers as well, so you you miss out. I'm sure Amazon lost a bunch of business. Um, very early on when they, they didn't have anything in Australia. Oh, they did, for sure. Oh, I know they, they lost business from, from me. I, yeah. I would have used them at a prior job, but they didn't have an, an Australia presence. And so we had to go with another provider that was based out of Australia. And it was a terrible experience compared to what we could have had on Amazon Web Services. So it, it is a true statement. Yeah, I was there. <laughs> uh, you were there. <laughs> they was obviously going after market share. I'm surprised they announced it this early, but it is, it is pretty early. Obviously, going after emerging markets. Yeah, it definitely uh, takes a long time to build all those servers and get all those Intel chips in the door. So <laughs> it's a lot of work to I imagine the capacity planning process that you have to do now when you're talking about so many regions and shipping and manufacturing and then supply chain management or something like running a cloud of this scale. It's, it's got to be super impressive. Yeah. If they're lucky, then Intel will have fixed all their bugs by, uh, by then. Uh, someday, maybe. <laughs> uh, Spendercurt Continuous Delivery Platform uh, has released a new version 1.13 that now supports Azure. So this is, of course, the open source multi-cloud CD solution from Netflix that they open sourced several years ago. And surprisingly, it hasn't died yet. Uh, but the new initial release uh, covers the build, bake, and deploy scenario of Azure. And eventually, they will be adding in support for AKS, uh, improving performance, and additional infrastructure abstractions for your use in the Azure ecosystem. They have released a public roadmap for this that you can find on the Spinnaker public roadmap page, uh, and you can see what's coming soon. I got nothing. I like Spinnaker, though. I'm not a huge fan of Spinnaker. I, I just, I can't get behind it. I want to, and I, I try, and I just, I can't. I, I just like Terraform too much, I think. Well, Terraform is more for infrastructure rather than de- software deployments, but I mean, Spinnaker is a deployment platform, but not, but a software deployment platform, I guess. Well, it does a lot of different things, which is which is part of the reason why I think I don't. It, it, it tries to be everything to everyone, and that's where I think it it falls down for me pretty quickly. It's kind of every tool, though, isn't it? I mean, Terraform is moving a little bit into deploys, and all the CM tools are moving into hardware provisioning. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it definitely does feel like it's things are moving around quite a bit. Yeah. All right. Uh, Azure Front Door Service is now GA'd. Uh, This is uh, apparently being called AFD in their documentation. Uh, The front door service includes four components, uh, an application and API acceleration with Anycast solution across Microsoft's massive private global network, a global HTTP load balancer capability, SSL offloading, WAF at the edge, and this is now available to you with 99.99% availability. 
uh, if you're using the Azure cloud. Yeah, I think this one's, um, you know, the, a lot of the providers have, have been announcing some services similar to this. And it uh, just reminds me of when we started uh, in the cloud and there was this concept of uh, avoiding being able to go with a single vendor uh, and be assured, take into your own control, the ability to uh, be highly available um, by having these, you know, regional, uh, effectively regional um uh, nothing shared between regions, and then everyone had to build this type of service themselves to uh, to leverage those as one continuous app. And now, you know, these providers are offering these options right on top, um, which then become a potential single point of failure. Right? If uh, Azure front door service pushes some bad code in a release, you will be down unless uh, if if that's your front door no matter how many regions you're across. The Azure Front Door service has been in preview since September last year. It was it was the uh, WAF, which we covered a couple of weeks ago. But most of these vendors have also released similar services. You know, at reInvent, uh, AWS released an Anycast service. Google has one as well. So it's, you know, as more as these vendors try to compete, they also kind of build the same things. And so uh, it, it doesn't surprise me that we got that confused. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Moving on to uh, Amazon Amplify. The framework uh, simplifies configuring OAuth 2.0 flows, a hosted UI, and AR VR scenes for mobile and web devices now. Uh, I had to say that as much as, you know, I think the three of us have not done a lot of research into Amplify, the pace of innovation that's happening in this product is pretty impressive and very fast. And so it's very clear that Amazon has a lot of hope and, and dreams for this Amplify framework. Uh, but this this announcement uh, now simplifies one of the big complaints I heard about it in the past, which is that it did not have a simple way to enable integration with Cognito. Uh, and so if you're using this to build a mobile app or a mobile web app, uh, you need to do authorization against Cognito. That was a bit of a, a weird set of hoops you had to jump through. Uh, but now you can now federate that identity with Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Cognito user pools. Uh, you can now use it with... Uh, your Amazon Sumerian 3D environments. And so this is a nice improvement if you're trying to do those type of things with this framework. It's cool. Uh, me and a couple of the guys are, are going to work on a project which will use Amplify most likely. And the Sumerian enhancements are going to be cool. We're playing on um, you know, the, the Amazon RoboCars. We decided that racing around a track was actually pretty boring. It's very quickly going to converge to whatever the limit is of those vehicles. And then what do you, what do you do with the car after that? So we're planning on doing kind of an augmented reality thing where the cars, we, you remote control the car from your laptop and it relays the video back, but we're going to overlay this augmented reality thing so you can drive around the office and shoot people and do whatever you like. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, cool. Yeah. Yeah, because we, because we can control the, um, 
we can be we can sit between the player and the actual cars. We can do simulations of things like, you know, you've gone through an oil slick, you know, slip to the side, or you've you've gone through sand and we can forcibly slow them down. It's uh, it's going to be cool, it's really cool. I'm curious to see how quickly they will converge on the perfect lap. Well, I think there's, what's, what they're going to change then is the track. You know, everyone's training for one track right now, presumably. Well, and the, the track is very flat, so maybe you start adding hills, you start adding other hazards, you, you start making it more complicated. Yeah, I want to see more than one car on the track at the same time. Uh, so Absolutely. Do, do avoidance, that's that's the biggest thing for me. But I, th- I think I think the... Avoidance? Uh, the opposite. Passing. <laughs> right? How are you going to set an algorithm to pass somebody who's only a, a tenth of a second slower than you? Mm. That's going to be the fun part. Yeah, the, 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 at Santa Clara, they do the first races of the league, I think, and they were around about 10 seconds, which came down from, what, 45 seconds, I think, at reInvent when they first announced the cars. So uh, I've seen the cars. I don't think they're going to get much faster than eight seconds. I would like to see the Deep Racer uh, Demolition Derby. That would be fun. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Uh, Microsoft has released a new app service migration assistant for ASP.NET applications. Um, this is an enhancement to a previously released tool called the App Service Migration Assessment Tool. The new App Service Migration Assistant is designed to simplify your journey to the cloud through a free, simple, and fast solution. Uh, the tool will assess your app to see if it's a good candidate for migration by running a scan of its public URL, and then it will check the configurations of the website in the and see if it's a candidate for Azure App Services. Uh, to make that whole process much simpler for your .NET developers. It's unfortunate that you couldn't just move any app. Well, you know, Microsoft only knows .NET apps. Why would, what, they won't move Java for you. I, did, I think if it could figure out whether or not my app is uh, suitable to move, that means my WAF isn't configured correctly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I thought the same thing. I was like, well, you're making a bold assumption that my app is available via public URL. <laughs> Uh, that, that is always a problem with cloud service trying to check your your on-prem environment it, it does cause issues yeah azure security center uh, based on all these new releases and everything has released a blog post where they discovered and exposed a crypto miner campaign and so they walked through the entire process of how they detected how they alerted uh, a vulnerability against cve-2018-7600 uh, which was the entry point for the attack that used a cron to maintain persistency and this is a crypto mining tool. Uh, Azure Security Center apparently spotted the attack in real time and alerted the customer. And first it saw that the suspicious file was downloaded through wget. Uh, a cron job was detected that was suspicious. And then it detected periodic file downloads and execution from a suspicious source. Uh, and then identified that the process executed from a weird location on the server itself. Uh, so really a pretty good blog post. Uh, we posted it here in the show notes. Uh, it kind of talks about how you can kind of see all these tools and all these capabilities that everyone's releasing, how they'll start working in a, in a really interesting security uh, posture perspective. So are they installing agents? Because how else would they see into the box uh, as far as that it's a cron? Or do you think it's just that they timed it? There, with... is, an, there is an agent component to the yeah. Azure Security Center in this particular case. Um, but even without that piece of it, they still saw that there was a weird download that occurred. They saw that you know that there were periodic file downloads from a suspicious source. So they, I mean, they definitely saw some stuff too that would have alerted you without the agent. Um, but having the agent gave you that really full end-to-end experience. You just see all you just you see where this is going. You know all all of the it's going to be expected that great security is just part of the platform, and that probably means uh, significant competition 
to all of the current security software providers where they're going to have to compete with free and add value on top of that. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it was, we saw the GCP last week, some of their DLP stuff, their Aqua security container stuff. Like they're, they're delivering a lot of stuff that the ecosystem is delivering right now that, you know, they're now going to be competing with their marketplace with. So it's good to see the innovation though. And I, the more you can unify these platforms and they have full understanding of the threat model landscape, that helps a lot. Let's get into uh, some clean energy talk. So apparently uh, Gizmodo reports that Amazon, who uh, has been working on a clean energy initiative, has stalled those efforts in an effort to aggressively pursue big oil. Uh, so in 2014, Amazon announced that they would power their rapidly expanding fleet of data centers with 100% renewable energy. Uh, they were reporting this out regularly until about 2016 when they... Uh, large investments stopped happening. Uh, it quietly abandoned the project, according to Gizmodo. And in 2017, uh, Amazon aggressively began marketing and sell selling to oil and gas companies. Uh, as of January 2018, Amazon had reported they'd reached 50% of renewable energies, uh, but this number is now declining with the rapid increase of data center rollouts globally. Yeah, you know, when I, when I read this, the first thing I thought was, man, that's, they're putting these two things together and implying that they're linked, and I think it's I think it's a little bit misleading. It, it sort of felt like shame on Gizmodo. Yeah, I think a little bit too. I, I felt similar, but it is interesting um, that they felt that it had some type of impact, which means that they feel like big oil has some type of big impact across the, the across the industry in some way, which you know I'm not entirely sure about. But the bigger issue is more on Amazon, and so. You know, the follow-up to this article coming out was that apparently, up as of recording today, uh, 6,562 Amazon employees have now signed a letter asking that the company adopt the climate plan shareholder resolution and release a company-wide climate plan that incorporates the principles of their letter. Uh, and in their letter, they said they would like to see public goals and timelines consistent with the science and the IPCC report, uh, a complete transition away from fossil fuels, reprioritization of the climate impact when making business decisions, reduction of harm to the most vulnerable communities first, and advocacy for local, federal, and international policies that reduce carbon footprints, and fair treatments for all employees during climate disruptions and extreme weather events. Uh, so overall, there's definitely some smoke and some fire behind that smoke uh, in this story. At what point does, does it become the responsibility of a company like Amazon to, um, to, to, you know, to, to do something like this, to commit to producing um, CO2 output and stuff like that? Like, for me at home, I do it because it saves me money on my electric bill. You know, I install solar panels because it costs less in the end than using uh, power from uh, the, the oil-fired plants or the coal-fired plants. Um, do I do it because of climate change? Yeah, potentially, a little bit. But mostly, mostly for me, it's cost. So at what point do we have to hold Amazon accountable for their, for their use of power? They're not, they're not um, generating their own power, presumably. They're buying it in bulk from whoever the local provider is. So I don't know. I'd, I'd like to think that the provider, the, the people generating the electricity that they're using would be equally or more, more accountable um, for reducing that output than the, their consumers. Yeah. I mean, first off, it's, you know, there's 6,562 employees uh, is right about 1% of Amazon's workforce. So this is definitely not a majority of people. And you know, they signed the letter. I don't know what uh, what uh, that cost them to sign the letter. Um, it was all they had to do was email, yeah, 
uh, an email address on Gmail or Hotmail, one of the two, from an Amazon.com email address with their name and title. Yeah, and so they, not a lot of not a lot of do. not a lot of uh, not a lot of skin in the game to to do that. It's not like they're offering ten percent of their salary in exchange for Amazon um, Amazon adopting it. So and it's pretty difficult because they have data centers all over the world in very very different economic conditions and climate conditions. And I guess to to put a single solution in place, which which could meet um, anything meaningfully across the entire globe, would be I don't know, unbelievable. Well, Amazon is completely customer centric, and they're proud of that. So I think that they'll do this when their customers would rather pay more for their products and services in exchange for um, being sustainable. Well, and I, I also you know there was a quote here in the, one of the articles. Uh, Amazon's sustainability team is using a science-based approach to develop data and strategies to ensure a rigorous approach to our sustainability work, the spokesperson said. We have launched several major and impactful programs, and we are working hard to integrate this approach fully across Amazon. So when I read that, I'm kind of like, well, potentially this is an issue of they did the easy stuff. <laughs> you know, They got to 50% doing the stuff that was well-known, that could scale easily, that was able to help drive the needle. But now the challenge is the next 50% is much harder and it requires investment and R&D. And it's, it's something that, you know, it may be a gap that you see for two or three years before, you know, those investments pay off. And then you start seeing that number start to climb again. Plus you're competing for market share, you're trying to build out data centers as fast as possible. Uh, these aren't things that, you know, just like tagging isn't part of some of their new features. Maybe <laughs> sustainable solar power isn't part of their new data center story in the first six months of a new region, right? And that's that's something to be expected in the MVP and those type of things. So, you know, I don't want to give them a complete pass because I think there is some responsibility that they could have, especially in the data center space and how electrical it is and how impactful is the environment. Um, anything that data center providers in general can do to help the climate change is a good thing. Um, but, you know... It, it's not their commitment is like 2022 or, or even further out than that. So it's not like it's tomorrow. They have time to get this to 100%, and they're already being blamed for not being a number that hasn't even hit here yet. Right. Well, if I got if I got servers in a data center racked, I'm not going to power those things off every night. I'm going to leave them running 24 hours a day. And if I migrate my workloads to um, an AWS region where I can auto scale, and I can even turn them off completely when I don't need them, then for me as a customer. That looks good for for my CO two neutrality. Yeah, but but Amazon don't get credit for that. Amazon's the service provider, and it's it seems weird to look at such a small piece of the picture. So sure, their their job is doing computational work for people. How are they ever going to be carbon neutral when that literally their job is to take energy and use it to do work? Yeah, we're not looking at the the benefit. Uh, the world is getting that thousands of companies aren't building their own data centers that are way less efficient than Amazon's. Yeah. Yep. All right. Amazon has uh, simplified the process to replatform your Microsoft SQL Server uh, database from Windows to Linux uh, with a new tool. This tool uh, scripts the process of moving from Windows to Linux to save money on your Microsoft licensing cost. Uh, this can be used with any Windows Server virtual machine hosted on the cloud or on your premises with SQL 2008 or above, although it will end up on SQL 2017 on Ubuntu 16.04. So keep that in mind. If you're, you're not ready to go from 2008 to uh, 2017, don't make this, don't use this tool. But overall, pretty nice, simple way to move from your on-prem or cloud environments to a much cheaper uh, Linux operating system for your SQL loads. I, I don't know how much, I couldn't imagine a ton of the cost is in the operating system there, right? It's all going to be on the SQL license. 
But for me, it was just about uh, making it easier to maintain these systems with a more maintainable OS. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, the big cost of SQL Server is not in the Windows license cost. It's in the SQL license right. cost itself. Yeah. So uh, it does save you some money and maybe standardizes your operating system platform. You're still paying a lot of money to make Microsoft SQL work. It may also help Google out that since they since they announced SQL support. Um, Google customers could also use this tool to check out their own local Windows SQL servers and then move to Google Cloud. Yeah, that's true. Like, or from Google Cloud to Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, and the final new show topic for this week is Amazon has released a new version of the open distro for Elasticsearch, uh, version 0. 0.80. Uh, this is showing the rapid commitment to this project. This now supports Elasticsearch 6.6.2, Kibana 6.6.2, and other enhancements and bug fixes for the plugins. Uh, alerting plugin has been updated to Kotlin 1.3, and the SQL plugin index pattern queries have been fixed in the JDBC driver, which was broken. Uh, they've also now providing you more granular master metrics that have been added to their performance analyzer. So they're definitely serious about this open distro for Elasticsearch. They're already, this is already the second release I've seen from them already. Uh, so definitely lots of innovation happening there, and I'm interested to see when it starts showing up in the managed Elasticache services on AWS. I'm interested in seeing when it shows up on uh, Elasticsearch, uh, Elastic's uh, stock price. <laughs> That'd be at earnings time, most likely. Yeah, yeah good. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> uh, which is, oh, we're almost back to earnings season again for Q1, so maybe in the next month or so we'll know more about that uh, particular issue. All right, and that ends the new show topics. Uh, let's move on to Peter and the lightning round. All right. Starting it off quick, AWS CloudWatch launches search expressions. I'm expressionless. <laughs> uh, AWS Cloud9 announces support for Ubuntu development environments. Strangely enough, not Amazon Linux. Okay, I don't think it does. Not in Linux 2. Supports Amazon Linux, the first one. <laughs> Announcing the Azure Functions Premium Plan for Enterprise Serverless Workloads. If you compare the two, this, this isn't a humorous jape or anything. If you compare the two, the, the consumer version versus the premium plan, they're basically identical. It's, it's, Unless you need more cores and more memory. But, but yeah, I mean, you're not getting anything else. Or you know, I mean, private networking, for God's sake. So, so the, consumer, the, the general consumer could use the premium functions and only use what they did before. I mean, you really don't get any uh, um, any benefit from premium plan other than access to the bigger instances. I mean, why why don't they just add this to the the regular consumer plan and let consumers pick what they want? Because they can't charge more money for it's it. An artificial tier. That's. I want the badge. I yeah. want the badge. Yeah. <laughs> Windows Server 2019 support now available for Windows containers on Azure App Service. Well, if anyone's Don't do it. Windows containers. <laughs> yeah. You, you guys stepped on each other. We did. We did. That's fine. Amazon EKS now delivers Kubernetes control plane logs to Amazon CloudWatch. Was there any other place to send them? Well, now there's some place. Some place is better than no place. <laughs> I mean, Dev Null apparently was not good yeah. enough, but you know, now at least can see them. <laughs> I'm waiting for the control plane max edition, which just crashes constantly. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm still I'm still mi looking for the mysterious Fargate EKS. That's the one that I'm waiting for. It's supposed to be out by now. 
Amazon workspaces, add tagging support for directories, images, custom bundles, and IP access control groups. Now I can tag my route to DevNull as good IP block. <laughs> Just tag everything. Just tag. Just tag. Just tag it. AWS Systems Manager Session Manager enables session encryption using customer keys now. And now three times fast, Peter. <laughs> systems Manager Session Manager enables session encryption using customer keys. Okay. Yes. The whole Systems Manager, simple Systems Manager, nomenclature, naming they've come up with this. Let's rebrand this whole product at this point because this is this whole naming convention has failed them in multiple ways. Yeah. No longer yeah. called Simple Systems Manager. It's <laughs> yeah. complicated as systems manager or is it server systems manager i don't i always call it simple because it's an oxymoron to me because it's not simple in any way and there's also like four dashboards for it you can go to and if you need to do like the session recording it's in a different menu than the other one it's great it's super awesome feature all right continuing on so that we don't become the uh the slow running stream section of our podcast amazon document db adds aggregation pipeline capabilities for strings dates and sampling just knocking off those Mongo features. <laughs> Nothing else? No Mongo? No Mongo rip? No. All right. AWS Elastic Beanstalk adds support for Go 1.12. Yay? <laughs> if you're running Beanstalk with Go, I have questions for Every you. Every single person running Beanstalk on Go that was upgrading to 1.12 needed this feature. What are you talking about? There's dozens of them. Dozens, <laughs> I tell you. <laughs> AWS Fargate PV 1.3 adds secrets and enhanced container dependency management. Microservices, which are supposed to be loosely coupled, now have dependencies? Yes. Yeah, that's what we want. We want to, <laughs> we want to encourage and, 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 uh, and support bad architectures. That's what we want to do. AWS introduces CSI drivers for Amazon EFS and Amazon FSx for Luster. Oh, my God. What was that? <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Uh, I was I was thinking Gil Grissom's gonna have a lot of fun trying to find EFS and how he took down FSX with his luster. AWS Deep Lens introduces new bird classification project. Well, so they need to identify the birds that are hitting those glass balls in Seattle, and so this now helps them identify the birds, make sure they're not you know protected. I needed something to help me classify my tits. <laughs> 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 That is awesome. I, I, I don't even know if I get it. <laughs> Great tits, blue tits. Yeah, they're all different kinds of birds. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's a British thing. AWS triples its testing locations, making it even more convenient to get AWS certified. So now you can have more locations with people reading the questions out loud for you, Peter. There's actually now one in my backyard, though, so it makes me super happy. There's one here by the, by the office, and, and I don't have to commute to the city to get certified Perfect. or to reinvent. <laughs> Amazon Transcribe now supports real-time speech-to-text in British English, French, and Canadian French. Oh, jolly good. Do we really need anything other than American? I don't get this. Can't they just learn how to speak American? Crying out loud. Well, technically, they were first, so they should be saying we should just <laughs> learn how to speak British. Maybe we can get some transcripts for the, show, for the shows now. Now, now it actually understands me. Oh, maybe so. <laughs> Amazon Elasticsearch adds event monitoring and alerting support. Is this making this a replacement for CloudWatch? It makes it similar. I wouldn't say a replacement. That would be awesome. That would be great, wouldn't it? Amazon CloudFront enhances the security for adding alternate domain names to a distribution. So you can stop spoofing you know, all the websites that you shouldn't own certificates for? 
CloudFront squatting. That was a thing. Yeah. It was previously very secure. Now it's just more so. It was it was not so secure. <laughs> <laughs> that is a that is a bold faced lie, sir. <laughs> I believe we previously squatted on uh, NFL.com and some other sporting establishments accidentally. We we might have accidentally done that by a QA engineer. Yeah. <laughs> it might have, it might have happened. We might have got a call from our support Pam. <laughs> Amazon QuickSight now supports localization, percentile calculations, and more. Ninety-nine percent sure this is a great feature. At the ninety-fifth percentile, it's a terrible feature. We are ninety-five percent of the way to a product that could be labeled GA. I thought they, I thought GA QuickSight a while ago. They did. Have you used it? Yeah. I've never used it. I have you do. Um, we yes, yes. It's got a little ways to go before it catches up to some of the uh, other players in the space. Like BigQuery? No, um, like... Uh, Tableau? Like Tableau, yes. Okay. Well, I mean, Tableau has hundreds of engineers dedicated for the sole purpose of making pretty graphs for your CEO. I, Amazon has, what, a two-pizza box team on this? <laughs> so it'll be a while. It'll be a while, but yeah, it, but, it, but it's cheap. Amazon SageMaker now supports greater control of root access to notebook instances. Why would we want to give root access to notebook instances? Like, it's already... The data science teams already have enough access as it is, enough things that they shouldn't be touching that they don't need root as well. <laughs> Amazon RDS enhanced monitoring adds new storage and host metrics. Well, we can really see how the sausage is made now. <laughs> we can really see how slowly your RDS database performs. Awesome. Hey, all right, so we're going we're gonna to look at the, uh, uh, the winner here, and I think it's got to be based on what I think is a first for the podcast, um, or at least the first during the lightning round, which was the sound effect. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Fantastic. I was hoping you would have you'd have the sound effect because I totally needed it. <laughs> that was awesome. I couldn't say who it was because honestly I didn't know which which of you it came from. Oh, it came from Jonathan. <laughs> that was awesome. Jonathan has a soundboard. I, I have no sounds on my side. Well, Justin, uh, he can't uh, he can't win again on that because the only reason he got it was it was the first. So it's true. It's true. Well, unless he comes up with something better, you never know. Okay. Yeah, it would have to be really good, not just a first. I'm going to get the first second. <laughs> <laughs> the first second. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, let's move on to cool tools with Jonathan. What do we have this week? So we've been talking a lot about security recently. And um, if an EC2 instance is compromised, it's pretty easy for, for anybody, even running as an unprivileged user, to get access keys just by calling a metadata endpoint. And so today I wanted to talk about the EC2 metadata filter, which is a, a small proxy you deploy to your EC2 instances. It uses an IP tables configuration to uh, forcibly send any traffic that was destined for the metadata endpoint through the proxy, and the proxy verifies um, that a particular host header is present. It's not a perfect solution because if your tooling is not built to add the header, then it's obviously not going to work. And if you already know what the header is going to be, then any kind of any uh, any attacker could add the header anyway. But it certainly puts up some uh, barriers to the script kiddies who may be attacking your Confluence or Jira or any other easily yeah, owned <laughs> internet presences. Yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting question that I've always wondered about the metadata service in general. And it actually has a, an interesting link to a good comparison of a bunch of different cloud metadata services. But you know, yeah, just a little bit of filtering there would be really nice. Um, because in some cases, you need to be able to have this data. and uh, you know, But you also don't want your hackers to be able to see, oh, I'm in a VPC, and now here's the VPC ID, and here's the instance type. 
you know, it's a, it's a way to start kind of discovering your environment and start, you know, probing from there. So it's definitely something I would like to see more things happening in metadata service to make it more secure. Um, especially now that you can do secrets in it that are encrypted, that's a great first step, but you know, there needs to be more still, I think here. So this is nice to at least have something to help. Yeah. I mean, it feels like this is a prime spot for Amazon to release something that's native and built in to the platform, either scoped to VPCs, um, maybe just scoped to accounts, but scoped to VPCs would be even better or, uh, or scoped to, uh, um, tags. Yeah, nice. tags, not tags. Come on, <laughs> <laughs> you trolled me again. <laughs> it's Jonathan's favorite security method is the tag. Tag based security. Yeah, it's it's anyway. It's a pretty neat little um, little tool. I think on on instances where I don't expect to need access to message or endpoint, I'd I'd use the same IP tables trick just to black hole any of that traffic. And it's it's nice too because it's a Go package, so it's, it's super teeny, and uh, it'll run on almost anything that'll run a Go executable. Yeah. So that's good. Very good. Well, that's an awesome, cool tool. And uh, we do have a call out to all of our listeners. If you have a cool tool or script that you've written that you think is awesome and you want to come pimp it on the show, we would love to have you join us here on the Cloud Pod. So if you have that, uh, definitely DM uh, either Jonathan or myself on Twitter or send us a uh, note on the contact form on the cloudpod.net. And we would love to get you scheduled onto a future show. And then Jonathan ha- can do uh, less work on cool tools because <laughs> it's uh, his favorite segment of the week every week. I'm learning to love it. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and audible.com. Subscribe today on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag the cloud Hey, this is Jonathan. I don't know if anybody else noticed, but I absolutely won that CSI lightning round question with the law and order sound effect.